in his first letter to the Colossians, sorry, his first paragraph to the Colossians, there's only one Colossians. I won't be quoting from second Colossians. In his first paragraph to the Colossians, Paul tells of how the gospel has spread across the entire world. Now, of course, at that time, he's talking about the Roman Empire, but all the world that he knows about, the gospel has spread to it and taken root and begun to grow and to flourish, whether the empire knows it or not. We think of a mustard seed, tiny seed, almost imperceptible, falls through the cracks and begins to take root and grow without the landowner's approval, without the homeowner's approval, without the groundskeeper's approval. It takes root and begins to sprout and spread and cover the ground. No matter who wishes it were there, somehow it finds its, ways, its way there and takes root. In spite of Nero, in spite of Diocletian, in spite of any other names of of rulers and authorities for Rome or across time in any empire or any nation state, somehow the gospel has taken root and sprouted and begun to grow fast-paced speed, uncontrollable. You can't kill it. You can kill it there, it comes back up over here. The early church did this without any official appeals. They didn't ask permission from the emperor. They didn't ask permission from the governor. They didn't ask permission from a landowner or a tenant. They didn't ask permission from a mayor or a magistrate. They just spread by taking communion together, by preaching the gospel, listening, hearing, spreading the word. Let the nations conspire, the second psalm say, and the rulers plot. Let the peoples plot and the rulers take counsel together against God and his anointed, saying, let's burst their bonds asunder and break the ties that bind. Meanwhile, church goes on. Somehow, in spite of persecution, in spite of ignorance, the church takes root in this tiny, imperceptible seed and begins to spread. It's a very organic process. Somehow it happens. We can't observe it. We don't know. It's a mystery. And yet, in spite of everything going against it, the church began to spread throughout the Roman Empire. Like an invasive species, a shoot comes up from the stump of Jesse and begins to grow up the marble facades and wrap around the Ionic and the Doric columns and take over. That's just the first paragraph to the Colossians. In the second paragraph, Paul describes these saints, these people who make up the faithful, the church, have been transferred from one kingdom to another, from empire to kingdom of God. The gospel somehow is affecting this radical new identity. People's lives are being changed dramatically from one way of life to another, such that Christians who had recognized that one of the most precious things to them in their whole life had been to be able to call themselves a Roman citizen, were now finding that they had more in common with a Jewish Messiah than they did with other Roman citizens. 
their Roman citizenship began to explain less and less about them. Recently, one of my children asked me, Daddy, how come we go to church and none of my friends do? And I found myself in the position that I remember one of my close friends growing up who was Jewish would always find himself in. And he would tell people, well, my, my people are just different. His name was Peter. So I remember what Peter said. And so I told my child, well, you know, we're just different. But we're Christians. We, we live different lives. We have a different schedule. Our life looks different because we go to church. It's just, it just is. I stopped there so I wouldn't keep digging. <laughs> Paul talks about the saints being rescued from a worldly way of life. The language has a sense of being saved from danger. He's trying to convey to us that there is a way of life that we have been saved from, a way of thinking about empire that we've been saved from and transplanted, transferred into a different world, a different worldview, and a different way of life that stands out, stands apart, not over and against, but beside and on behalf of. What are some of the primary differences between us, Christians, and everyone else? We talk about being in the world, but not of the world. Well, what does that mean? What has it always meant? I lean into Justin Martyr, one of the earliest church fathers, born in 100 A.D., who said, we who formerly treasured money and possessions more than anything now hand over everything we have to a treasury for all and share it with everyone, anyone who has need. That is a significant difference from anything that came before. We're not talking about 2.5% or 10%. We go up to Jesus and Jesus asks, why are we quibbling over, quibbling over percentages? Jesus says all, everything. That's new. That's different. Justin Martyr points us to this difference. Another difference, he says, is we who formerly, we who formerly hated and murdered now live together and share the same table. We who formerly were against one another now gather around the same common table. Not just us, but the Christians all over the world. And a third thing, he says, we pray for our enemies and try to win those who hate us. That will set you apart as well from the world. Who else says that? Who else places that in the center of a common life of a community? Love your enemies. No one. That's one of the significant differences and when we're transferred into this kingdom way of life and this kingdom way of thinking that begins to take root in us, 
and differentiate us from the world. But you see a kind of pattern in what Justin Martyr was saying. Once we were blind, now we see. Once we were lost, now we were found. Once we lived in this certain particular way, now we live in a different particular way. And it makes us odd. It makes us strange. It changes our schedules. If somebody invites one of your kids to a birthday party on Sunday morning, we'll see you another time. Because I've got a community that I belong to, and there I learned to give my whole life. I learned that my hard heart can be softened and that I can sit across the table from anybody. And where I learned how to love my enemies. Brunch just can't do that. Hollandaise sauce is fine. It's nice. But it can't teach that. This is the way that God has chosen to rescue the world. Through broken, fallible human beings like us who do things just a bit differently than everyone else so that the world can see the love of God, the transformation of the gospel that takes effect in a human person and begins to spread and shine like a little light in the world. God has chosen to rescue the world through peculiar people like us. That is the difference that Israel began in the world and still holds for the world to see. And that is the difference that the church expands across the whole world. So when we say world communion, what are we saying? What is this a communion of? It is a communion of people whose history in common life across time supplants and also transcends the kingdoms of this world. When you think about a globe, a globe that is mapped, in your mind's eye, what do you see? Well, I see a map of nations. Each nation, perhaps, is a different color. I think of the globe that was in my room as a child. Each nation had a different color so that I could remember which ones were which. It was a kind of aid to memory. But all the boundary lines were drawn. All the colors were coded. And no matter where you spun the globe, you'd see a different name, a different nation, different markings, boundary lines, crossing like a grid all over the the globe. But what if a Christian Being Christian means that when we see a globe, we see something different on that blue-green sphere. The lines drawn no longer hold as much sway over us. And rather what we see is a a blue-green globe that's sprinkled with preservative salt and glowing with pinpoints of light scattered all around. Sometimes when you're in a global communion this big, you can have disagreements with those with whom you're in communion. One of the first times I remember being in disagreement, profound disagreement with someone else who called themselves a Christian. 
I was working with my youth group. We were leading a Bible school and a housing project in my hometown. And we gathered each day that week in the middle of the square and gathered all the kids and took them to a classroom and taught them scripture and we played games and you know, you know what vacation Bible school was like. That's what we did. We just did it somewhere else. We had a guest preacher come one of those days to sit down with the kids to tell them about the gospel. I'd never seen this preacher before. He was from the neighborhood. He came and he sat down with the kids. And I sat down Indian style with them, with my youth minister beside me, and, and I began to listen to what the minister was saying. And, and he opened the scriptures and he, he read a, a rather uh, typical gospel scripture, John 3.16. And then he started to say, uh, then he started to use an illustration. And here's where I sort of went off the rails. He said, boys and girls, do you know how it feels? put your finger accidentally on the eye of the stove? Well, that's how it will feel when you're eternally punished if you don't give your life to Jesus. Whoa! Um, And so as he's using this illustration, I turn and look to my youth minister, and he's like this. And he turned and looked at me, and I was like this. And we turned and looked at all the kids, and all the kids were like this. I mean, sure, there are places in Scripture you can go where if you touch the eye on the stove, it's really hot. And then again, if you've actually read the whole Bible, that's not the overarching sense of it, friends. The overarching sense in the last word is grace, peace to all the saints. Who knows? Maybe it means all. It ends with reconciliation. Where the punishment is, it's not for us to decide or or to judge. but, But the last word is God's, and God is a loving God who... When Jesus says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. I wanted to wrap those children up and bring them close to myself and tell them that. But if I can be in communion with a minister like that, God says I am. Then who can I not be in communion with? Then again, communion can be such a rewarding thing to know that across the globe we are in communion with other Christians, and I found out that too when I was younger. I was on a trip to Thailand this time around. And and I'm not talking about tourist Thailand. I'm not talking about Bangkok or Chiang Mai or that place Leonardo DiCaprio went at the beach. None None of those places. I'm talking about we got in a narrow banana boat and headed north way north, miles and miles, traveling on the river north to where the Black Lahu and the Red Lahu live. And I remember tracking our way after we got off the boat, miles deeper into the woods. And there is no more exotic landscape I've ever seen in my life 
than this particular hike. After about a half a day of hiking, we got up to this village, and all the houses were on stilts. I don't know why, because we were in the mountains. The only houses I've ever seen on stilts were at the beach. So I don't know. Very different place, very different kind of community. Had to climb a ladder to get up into one of these homes. I and 11 others from the United States of America sitting in this elevated hut where they had invited us for lunch. And I remember we sat in a circle around the trunk of the tree that held up the house that rose up through the middle of the room and out through the roof. And we sat down and we ate piles of rice or piles of meat, I'm not sure what kind of meat, on top of the rice. And it was so delicious. The hospitality was so generous. Just think about what it would cost a family like that to feed 12 Americans who came out of the middle of nowhere. Generous. They gave maybe everything they had that week to us. They also loved on us, and they asked us, they pleaded with us, please, Americans, this was in 2002, please don't go to war, please. We love you. We want you to love us. We're tired of war. And yet they kept heaping rice and meat on our plate. And as I was eating my lunch, I remember the strange sensation of a hairy arm coming across my neck and turning around and meeting a monkey. It was a monkey. Like I turned around, it was an actual monkey. And it was taking food off my plate. And I turned around and I looked at him and I said, hey, and he just smiled like this. Interesting who you can find yourself in global communion with. Also interesting that I couldn't have been farther from my native soil. It's literally not possible to take the globe, start where I was from, circle to the other half and put a pin in it. That's where I was. The thing that kept coming to my mind as I looked around the circle was, isn't this amazing? True communion. I can't speak the language. I've never met any of these people before in my life. I just ate lunch with a monkey. And yet, it feels like home. Amen.